0: Every time we made a video, the question always came back, how do we put it on our website? What do you recommend? And at the time, YouTube was the best recommendation. Now, YouTube on BlackBerry.com was a bit of a challenge because a YouTube player functions as an outbound link to YouTube.com, which is an ad monetized platform. That's how they make money. If your competitors are smart, they can advertise against uh, the videos you have on your homepage, And in fact, when the BlackBerry Playbook launched, if you remember this tablet, a little dodgy in ways, um, but at the end of the video, which is on BlackBerry's homepage, all the recommended videos were iPad versus Playbook comparison videos. And if you watch one of those, it was very likely that you weren't going to buy a Playbook. And this is on blackberry.com. So we solved that problem by just building a simple video hosting solution. And then the questions came, how do we track who's watching the videos? And for how long? And can we port that data into our CRM and our marketing automation system? Can we add interactivity? Can we transcribe the video? Can we personalize it? Uh, Can we integrate it into other systems of record? And so we were always, we existed to solve a problem.
1: This is the first of a two-episode interview with Michael Litt, CEO and co-founder of Vidyard, a platform for video hosting and audience engagement. This was recorded on Stocks podcast stage in Dublin. The company did a $15 million debt financing round shortly after this interview and has raised a total of $76 million. In this episode, we find out how Michael set up a business to solve a simple, with lucrative problem in BlackBerry, where he was working at the time. And this led down a fantastic rabbit hole that resulted in the rocket ship that he sits in the cockpit of today. We also learned that ice cream is not always bad for you. Welcome to 14 Minutes of SaaS. The show where you can listen to the stories and opinions of founders of the world's most remarkable SaaS scale-ups. It's wonderful to have you with us here on the 14 Minutes of SaaS podcast show here in the SaaS Dog podcast stage. That's a lot of SaaS going on. How are you?
0: Tons of SaaS everywhere. I'm great. I'm great. It's 9 a.m. ish. Yeah and uh, day three of SaaS talk, I guess. So it's uh, coming to an end today.
1: And how's the, how's the event been for you, personally and, and for your business?
0: It's incredible. Um, I was telling Alex this yesterday, the people here obviously are dedicated to this, this business model we all love, um, software as a service, and I feel like the community here is both very innovative um, and also kind of oriented around, around deal making and progress, but really supportive of one another. You don't get that at all tech conferences. Um, there's a real sense of camaraderie. Um, it's less combative than, than I've seen in other conferences before. You get a lot of tech conferences. You get a lot of what you know, we could sometimes classify as people that are really excited by the idea of entrepreneurship, uh, but not necessarily the work required to be one. And uh, that could be a little bit tiresome sometimes. But everybody here is, is exercising new business models, new ideas, solving real problems. Quite a refreshing audience. And I always leave SaaS and go back to HQ and feel really good and feel really fueled.
1: Now, you're from Ontario in Canada. So before we talk about um, you've an interesting interest, history in technology, before you got into technology, your childhood growing up, give us a little two-minute resume of, of, of Michael Litt's life.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I was, I was born uh, just south of uh, a city called Waterloo, uh, in, a, in a city called Kitchener. Kitchener, Waterloo, Cambridge is the, the tri-cities in southwestern Ontario. About five, 600,000 people total between those three regions. And uh, my very first job was as a paperboy. And I had two paper routes, eventually acquired a third, and I actually paid uh, kids in the street to run the second and third paper route for me, and eventually the first. So had a little bit of a, a paper route, yeah, mafia. I would have been um, probably 10, 11 at the time. Wow. So grade three and grade four. And uh, I guess that was probably my, my, my first, or actually that would be four or five, that was my first kind of adventure into, into entrepreneurship and leadership, so to speak. Um, my parents, my, my dad was an electrician uh, who worked at the local utility company, uh, Kitchener-Wilmont Hydro. My mom worked at St. Mary's Hospital. Uh, As a clerical worker, and they were adamant that my brother and I um, essentially had had more, to them, more fulfilling careers than they did, in a way, and and my dad worked for engineers. And when the University of Waterloo was being built, he was a contract-based electrician at the University of Waterloo, so he would bring my brother and I there uh, when we were very young and say, you're going to go to school here one day. And so um, I was definitely pushed into science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, despite the fact that personally I was more attracted to kind of the arts. And, uh, and so in undergrad, or in high school, spent a lot of time in, in computer sciences and technology, eventually got into uh, an engineering program at the University of Waterloo. Um, a common vein through my entire childhood was work and jobs. Um, I was also told by my parents that I was going to have to put myself through school And so that meant always working and always saving. So 10% of everything I made went into an RESP from the very first dollar I made. Um, Often I had four to five jobs at a time. So I was uh, cleaning the local pharmacy. I washed the windows at the local bank. I led a summer uh, camp uh, called Summer Playgrounds at Alpine Public School. I was a swimming instructor and lifeguard at Harry Class Pool. And I was a bike technician at Sportcheck. And so all five of those jobs at one time in preparation for school taught me some work ethic, um, taught me some financial management. Uh, And so when I got into university, I met uh, my co-founder, Devin Galloway, on the very first day in an ice cream eating contest. And uh, I guess you could say the rest is history, but.
1: On the very first day.
0: Yes, the very first day of undergrad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, it's a really funny story, real quick. Um, yeah, please tell us. So Devon was also local. And uh, University of Waterloo is, a, is kind of a, a very international school. People come from all over the place to study engineering and CS yes there. Uh, it's a really great option in North America. And I think the undergrad programs rank uh, similarly to MIT. So it's wow. Waterloo or MIT is, is kind of where you're going to go. Yeah. And anyways, uh, there's a scavenger hunt during Frosh Week. And uh, one of the competitions during the scavenger hunt is an ice cream eating contest. And Devin loves eating ice cream, so do I. So we both volunteer for it. We get to the room, and they say, build a really awesome sundae. And then uh, the competition is how fast you can eat the sundae. Uh, But the the crux of the competition is you don't feed yourself, Uh, the person who's eating it puts their hands behind their back, and the person who's feeding it slides their arms through that person's armpits, grabs the spoon, and puts it into their mouth. So this is the first time I've met Devin, and Devin says, I love eating ice cream. I can do this really quickly. I've done this my whole childhood. So I say, sure. So I I slide my arms through his armpits, and I'm really close behind him, (laughs) and he says, feed it to me as fast as you can. I can take it. So they count down from three They Say three, two, one. And I see everybody grabbing the spoon and starting to you know shovel ice cream and i think you know what there's got to be a better way so i throw the spoon away grab both hands full of the ice cream for the whole sunday just shove it into his mouth and he (laughs) took it and he ate it and we won and uh we became best of friends after that and have been breaking the rules and solving problems ever since and that was uh 16 years ago
1: so if he had that much much trust at the beginning (laughs) there was always going to be trust after that right yeah yeah has he, has he got like the marlon brando type thing is he like Able to get through the door today, or
0: uh? <laughs> he—he's uh, definitely um, potentially a little. Uh, I don't want to say anything, but Devin. Devin's that, great. Actually. He's a great guy. He, he's he a great guy. We, we, we still love eating ice cream together.
1: I noticed when I read that your professional history—you uh, were with Research in Motion for a while. Yes. And I used to love my BlackBerry. The thing I miss Me about too. it is uh, I used to love uh, emailing and, and and messaging on it, uh, which uh, well, emailing really. Uh, which I miss, I, I still, I can never get my, uh, my fat fingers around the, around the, my iPhone as quickly, like, you know, so what happened? Like, how did such a great company, um, go, f- fall so far so fast?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, first of all, you could still buy a Blackberry with keyboard runs on Android. Um, but I think yeah. they're they're sunsetting this the, the product line.
1: And I just switched to Android. Oh, there you go. There. Yeah.
0: I was so they're very rare. You'll you'll see them in Waterloo, but not 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 much else. Um, so in 2007 is when I worked there, and in 2007 was a remarkable year for BlackBerry for a number of reasons. Uh, one, it was an incredible growth rate. I think the market cap at that point was 60, 70 billion dollars. Um, You know, you couldn't do wrong, it was the cool place to work. I was in software product management on um, essentially a a secure device management platform for small businesses and um, in that year uh, Android was announced and the original iPhone launched and the iPhone Internally, was looked at as a as a consumer product and, and almost a plaything, right? An oh, iPod man. with calling functionality. Now, this is before the App Store, yep. before any of this stuff happened, and uh, you know, battery life was bad, no keyboard, all the things that BlackBerry people loved, the iPhone didn't have. Now, one of the challenges I think is that you know, customer advisory councils can be dangerous things for companies, and BlackBerry specifically was a really incredible tool for CIOs that were security focused, and those were the people that made up the customer advisory board. But what I saw in small business was that companies were moving to this bring your own device strategy, almost like product-led growth today, which is what I spoke about a little bit on stage yesterday. Yep. And in that process, consumers had all the power and what they wanted to bring to work, and so as the iPhone became more feature rich and the App Store became a thing, it turns out people, the end user cared less about security than the owner of the business did, and they wanted to be able to play apps when they went to the bathroom and do all the things people do on their iPhones, right? So, you
1: got, so they got a bit, a bit of both, right? Yeah, and
0: so the iPhone kind of came into the organization via this this, this kind of strategy and, and method of execution and, and, and purchasing power on the consumer that, that Blackberry didn't necessarily foresee. Yeah. and it just couldn't get the app strategy and other aspects right because it was such a transformational change to their business model, which limited them from doing so. So I think that's part of it. There's, there's, a, there's a myriad of reasons, but um, yeah, I think there's egos, there's all sorts of stuff, right? I mean, th- this company at its peak was one of the most powerful in the world. Like They invented the mobile internet, right? Absolutely. Um, to some degree, and, uh, and so I, I think, you know, the bigger they are, the harder they fall. Um, but that industry, You know, Nokia, Motorola, uh, Palm had all fallen to BlackBerry's rise prior to it, and then Apple just kind of cleaned everything up.
1: VDR is nearly nine years young at this stage. Take us back to the beginning. What was the problem you saw or the opportunity you saw that made you want to found that with your good ice cream-eating friend?
0: Yeah, great question. So when I was at BlackBerry, um, one of the projects I led was to bring in a company to develop a series of videos that were designed to help a small business owner install this fairly complex um, server-based security software that managed devices, device management software. Okay. Um, it was complicated, You know, it sat inside of a firewall, there was all sorts of interesting aspects to setting it up, and video was the best way that we could think of to help these people use the software and not put a huge support and resource burden on BlackBerry at the time. And so um, this company charged I think $80,000 for what was effectively five videos. Wow! And the videos were nothing special um, and something that I realized I could potentially do uh, in my basement on evenings and weekends. So actually at that time I thought of spinning up a company um, and then bidding on that contract uh, independently, which is obviously a massive conflict of interest, yeah. but you know this is what we do as entrepreneurs sometimes. We started that company. Um, after BlackBerry, after Cypress Semiconductor, I took my very last co-op term off, and engineering at the University of Waterloo is four months work, four months school, all the way through the program. So I took that first, uh, the last four month co-op off to start a video production business and went back to my coworkers at BlackBerry and Cypress Semiconductor and other businesses with this idea of we're going to help you make videos to solve these problems and reduce support burdens. Of course, every time we made a video, the question always came back: How do we put it on our website? What do you recommend? And at the time, YouTube was the best recommendation. Now, YouTube on BlackBerry.com was a bit of a challenge because a YouTube player functions as an outbound link to YouTube.com, which is an ad monetized platform. That's how they make money. If your competitors are smart, they can advertise against uh, the videos you have on your homepage, and in fact. When the BlackBerry Playbook launched, if you remember this tablet, a little dodgy in ways, um, but at the end of the video, which is on BlackBerry's homepage, all the recommended videos were iPad versus Playbook comparison videos. And if you watched one of those, it was very likely that you weren't going to buy uh, a Playbook. And this is on blackberry.com. So we solved that problem by just building a simple video hosting solution. And then the questions came, how do we track who's watching the videos and for how long? And can we port that data into our CRM and our marketing automation system? Can we add interactivity? Can we transcribe the video? Can we personalize it? Gotcha. Uh, can we integrate it into other systems of record? And so we were always, we existed to solve a problem. Um, and you know I, I think that's the advice I give a lot of entrepreneurs is you have to be a solution to a real problem and get obsessed with that problem. And, and Y Combinator, which ended up funding us, their mentality is built something people want. So yeah. we've always been built around that strategy.
1: In the next and concluding episode with Michael Litt, CEO and co-founder of Vidyard, we learn about the Vidyardian culture. Sounds like an alien species in Star Trek. We also hear the fable of the unpruned rose and why a great scale-up is a rocket ship that carries no passengers. You've been listening to 14 Minutes of Sass. Thank you to Ketsu for music provided under a Creative Commons license. This episode was brought to you by me, Stephen Cummins, If you enjoyed the podcast, please don't forget to share it with your network, subscribe to the series and give the show a rating.